Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, do please help us to understand your word now. Help us uh, to, uh, as we reflect on the kings of Israel, uh, remember the greatness of our king and help us to know how to live uh, trusting him and following his example. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, maybe this is just me. Maybe, uh, maybe this is a male thing. Maybe this is a middle-aged thing. But one of the things that I crave most is just a pleasant life. A life of peace. I I, I hate conflict. I don't want to fight with anyone. I hate being hassled. I hate being nagged. I hate fuss and bother. I just like harmony and, and peace and quiet. And so I find... In most circumstances, when people are asking me for things, it is easier to say yes than it is to say no. It's easier to say okay and just give in for the sake of peace rather than refuse people. Let me give you some examples. (laughs) My wife, Carmelina, asks me to do things, jobs and so on. Leaves me with a judgment call to make. Which is the path of least resistance here. (laughs) Is it easy to say, just say okay and do the job? Or is it easy to say no? That requires some measurement, okay? Mostly it's easy to say okay. Easy, just do the job, don't hurt her feelings, don't create a fuss. But sometimes the job's bigger than the pain. (laughs) (laughs) Same with the kids. When they ask me something and I say no, I know it's going to be a pain. They will question me, they will argue, they will hassle, they will nag. And so unless there's a very good reason for saying no, I say okay. (laughs) Or unless I can say those three beautiful words of parenting, ask your mother. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, the problem with having four children is there are constantly competing requests. And my children have a very keen sense of injustice if one child gets something that other children don't get. And so I have to weigh that into the equation as well. If I say yes to this, that means four yeses, so which is going to be easier? Hard work, finding the path of least resistance. It's the same with work. Um, I try to avoid conflict, try to avoid fuss and bother, try to just stay to people's way so they don't hassle or nag me. I just like to get on with it in peace and quiet. I crave a pleasant work life. And so when people ask me to do things, usually it's easier to say, okay. In life, pretty much try to follow the path of least resistance, but most of the time, to avoid fuss, I just do what I'm told. I say, okay. (laughs) Just me? I suspect it's a middle-aged man thing. I'm not sure if it's other people as well. Maybe this doesn't apply to you. I mean, maybe you love conflict. Or or, or maybe there's something that you're so passionate about that that drives you more than the desire for a pleasant life. Maybe this doesn't apply to you at all. But I have to say, I do think that I have a kindred spirit in King Ahab of Israel. (laughs) We're going to see that in these next couple of chapters of 1 Kings. So we start off at chapter 20 of 1 Kings by by meeting the king of the nation of Aram. Uh, King of the the nation of Aram is a man called Ben-Hadad. 
Now, Ben-Hadad, he wants to assert his authority of Israel. He's looking for a fight, this guy. And so he sends messengers to King Ahab. He says, I want all your silver. I want all your gold. I want your best wives. Your be- I want your family as slaves. Now, Ahab just wants a pleasant life. He doesn't want to have a fight. He doesn't want to have the hassle of war. And so he says, okay. <laughs> 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 1. Have a look with me. 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 1. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army. Accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots, he went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. He sent messages into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, says Ahab, Just as you say, my lord the king, I and all I have are yours. Abinadad still isn't satisfied. He makes even more demands, and at this point, you can feel the scales are starting to tip. It's becoming more trouble to say yes to Ben-Hadad than it is to say no. Ahab seeks the advice of the elders. They say, don't give in to Ben-Hadad. And so Ahab says, okay, to their advice and refuses Ben-Hadad's demand. Verse 7. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, see how this man's looking for trouble? When he sent for my wives and my children, my silver and gold, I did not refuse him. The elders and the people all answered, don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messengers, tell my lord the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, but this demand I cannot meet. They left and took the answer back to Ben-Hadad. Now Ahab's answer, despite his best efforts, starts a war. Ben-Hadad gets ready to attack, but a prophet brings God's word to Ahab. He says, Ahab, you're going to win, and he tells him how to go about the battle. This all sounds good to Ahab, and so once again, Ahab says, okay. Verse 13. Uh, Meanwhile, a prophet came, verse 13, to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this? asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. The prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned the 232 junior officers under the provincial commanders, and then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon, while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk. The junior officers under the provincial commanders went out first, And then following what God says, Ahab wins the battle. Verse 21, jump to verse 21. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. Now, the Arameans are a bit rushed into that war and uh, when you've got chariots, you probably want to fight on flat land, not in the hills. they, they, They conclude theologically that they've made a mistake fighting Israel in the hills. They think their God might be stronger in, than, than the Lord in the plains. And so the next year, they gear up for another battle. Uh, Once again, God says to Ahab that he'll win this battle. Uh, Once again, Ahab says, okay. And once again, Ahab does win. Verse 28. Verse 28. Uh, Second battle. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. 
For seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted 100,000 casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them. And Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in an inner room. Ben-Hadad's been defeated, and now he asks Ahab for mercy. What's Ahab thinking? Gee, if I have mercy, maybe he'll stop hassling me. Maybe this will be the end of the wars. Maybe I'll finally get some peace and quiet. And so yet again, Ahab says, okay, halfway through verse 33, halfway through verse 33. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come in, come up into his chariot. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You may set up your own market area in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Ahab said, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with him and let him go. Ahab has mercy on the king of Aram. But God's not happy about that. God sends a prophet to Ahab to tell him he's done the wrong thing. He says it's going to bring about his downfall. And we'll see more of that next week. There's not really much Ahab can do now. (laughs) Seems no matter what he does, he gets into trouble, so he has a sulk about it. Uh, It doesn't matter what he does, it's just hassle, hassle, hassle. Verse 42, verse 42. He, that's the prophet, verse 42, said to the king, This is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. So despite his best efforts, two wars for uh, for King Ahab. Uh, Next scene, next scene, we see Ahab having another sulk. Um, He he wants the vineyard of a man called Naboth. It's close to his palace, good place for a veggie garden, save him having to walk too much. Very important when you're a middle-aged man. Uh, But but, but Naboth won't give it to him. Now, once again, Ahab doesn't want to make a fuss. I mean, he liked the vineyard, but he doesn't want any trouble. And so he says, okay, and he leaves Naboth alone. But he's, he's not happy about it. Chapter 21 and verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. Ahab's wife Jezebel sees him having a sulk. Uh, She's not the sulking type, so she asks what the problem is. He tells her, she says, leave it to me, honey. And Ahab says, can you guess? Okay. And so Jezebel sorts it out, Sidonian style. Verse 7. Verse 7, Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he's cursed both God and the king and take him out and stone him to death. And that's what happens. Jezebel murders Naboth, steals his property, 
Then she says, Ahab, get up and take Naboth's property. And Ahab says, Okay, verse 15. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Now again, God isn't happy. And he sends Elijah to give Ahab the message, that's it. You're finished. Your dynasty is finished. Verse 20. Verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I've found you, he answered, because you've sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I'll make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you've aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. He just wants a peaceful life. Here's God denouncing him. And so what does he do? He doesn't want to be in trouble with God. He doesn't want to be in trouble with anyone. He hates conflict. He just wants peace and quiet. And so what's the path of least resistance here? Ahab says, okay. He humbles himself before God. And he gains a reprieve for his dynasty of one generation. Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I'll bring it on the house, on his house in the days of his son. Okay, can you see what's here? In uh, this passage, chapters 20 to 21, poor Ahab. I mean, it reminds me of that Harry Nilsson song, you know, everybody's talking at me. I mean, he's got this cacophony of voices in his ear. Everyone wants a piece of poor Ahab. I mean, you can imagine this guy. He probably liked the idea of being king of Israel. This sounds like a good gig. You do what you want, you eat what you want, you drink what you want, you have sex with who you want, there's servants to take care of your every need. Sounds like every bloke's fantasy to be king, a very pleasant life. But the reality of being king is very different. The reality is just one big hassle. Ben-Hadad won't leave him alone. That leads to two wars, despite Ahab's best efforts. Ahab's got advisors in both ears. You do this, do that, do the other. He's got subjects who won't do it as they're told. What's the point in being king if people like that pain in the neck Naboth won't do what you ask them? He's got a wife who he really does not want to mess with. (laughs) You certainly would not want to say no to Jezebel. And then above all of that, there are these pesky prophets who keep hassling him. Do kill Ben-Hadad. Don't kill Naboth. God's going to kill you. Blah, 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 blah. Just leave me alone. Ahab tries so hard to placate everyone. He tries so hard to avoid conflict, to just get the nice, pleasant life. If everyone would just stop hassling him, he could enjoy the benefits of being king in peace. But whatever he does, it seems to be wrong 
just seems to make things worse. Now, you may have noticed I've got a fair bit of sympathy for Ahab. Uh, I get him. I think I know how he feels. But I have to say, God does not share my sympathy. Uh, God is far from impressed with Ahab. Have a look with me. Just jump back with me to chapter 21 and verse 25. Chapter 21 and verse 25. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. God's not happy. And I've been thinking about it this week. I've been asking myself this question. What's, what's the essence of Ahab's problem? You know, I, as I look through chapters, you know, these last few chapters, I don't think Ahab's a passionate Baal worshipper. I don't think he's a passionate Asherah worshipper. What, what's the essence of his problem? What's the heart of his sin? What's, what's his real idolatry? You know what I think it is? I think it's the sin of sloth. Do, do you know what a sloth is? Yeah, yes, I know it's a cute furry animal that hangs upside down. But, but in this context, do, do, do you know what sloth is? It, it means just laziness. I remember a few years ago reading a book by Anthony Campolo. It's called The Seven Deadly Sins. I've lent it to somebody. If that's you, could I have it back, please? Um, <laughs> Uh, one, of the chapters, one of the chapters was about sloth. And, and I was really struck by this chapter because I came into the chapter thinking, oh, yes, this is one I don't suffer from. But I was really struck by the way sloth leads us into all kinds of sins. I mean, a lot of our sins of omission, the stuff we don't do, is because we're slothful. And, but it's more than just what we don't do. Sloth leads us to do what is easy rather than what is right. I reckon that's Ahab's problem. Sloth. He is constantly doing what is easy rather than what is right. He keeps on following the path of least resistance because fundamentally he's lazy. His idol has becoming is just that he might have this pleasant life. What do you reckon? Think there's something to what I'm saying? As I say, I'm, I'm sympathetic, but it makes for a terrible king. And by the time we get to the end of two kings, we will see the terrible effects of terrible kings like Ahab. By the time we get to the end of two kings, Israel will be defeated, destroyed, wiped out, never to rise again. What Israel need is a king who is not slothful. What Israel need is a king who will do what is right rather than what is just easy. What God's people need is a king who will follow God's path and do what God says rather than follow the path of least resistance. Where will they find a king like that? Well, praise God, that's the king we have in Jesus, isn't it? 
You think about Jesus' life, we've been looking at it in John's Gospel this year, haven't we? It's a constant cacophony of voices in his ears. We saw it in John's Gospel. His mum's telling him what to do. His brothers are telling him what to do. His disciples are always at him. Jesus, do it this way. Do it the other way. People on the streets begging him, Jesus, do this. Jesus, do that. The religious leaders never stop hassling him. And in the other Gospels, we see that even the devil himself has his turn. Jesus was tempted over and over again to do what was easy rather than what was right, to take the path of least resistance rather than God's path. And we see that most clearly with the cross, don't we? The devil says, don't worry about the cross. Just bow down to me, I'll give you the world. Pretty easy to see the path of least resistance there. Peter, Peter says, never Lord, this shall never happen to you. The crowds and the religious rulers and the criminals at his side, they taunt him, if you really are the son of God, come down from the cross. But for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. He humbled himself and followed God's path even to his death on that cross. Jesus is the king who did what was right, not what was easy. Jesus is the king who puts serving God above the idolatry of a pleasant life. Jesus is the king who followed God's path and not the path of least resistance. And so God raised him to life, never to die again. He's made Jesus the king of an eternal kingdom, one that, unlike Israel in the book of Kings, will never be defeated, will never be destroyed. And so, friends, once again, here's the point of one Kings. It's been the point every single week. In Jesus, we have the king we need. We've got to trust Jesus and ask him to be our king, forgive us, allow us a place in his kingdom, because he is the king we need, who always did and always will do what is right. I hope that's what you've done. I hope that you have put your trust in Jesus as your king. It is eternally important that you do. But also I think there's a lesson here for slothful people, don't you? Uh, For people, well, for people like me, uh, people who just long for a pleasant, hassle-free life. The Apostle Paul wrote this. I've put it on your outline. It makes me tired just to read this. Can you see it there on the right-hand side, halfway down? He says, What? Whatever you do, whether in word, whatever you say, or deed, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Or in another place he wrote this, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Christ. Whatever you say, whatever you do, do it in Jesus' name. That is, do it thinking, is this what Jesus would want me to do? Is this how I should be speaking, acting as Jesus' person? Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, not just for the sake of a peaceful life, but is this what will bring glory to God? Do do what is right, not what is sinful. Do what is loving, not what is selfish. That's the example of Christ, the example Paul followed, the example he commands us to follow. I tell you what, though, that is a hassle, isn't it? That is a big ask. It'll mean hard work, conflict, 
it'll mean saying no to some things, even if it would be easier to say yes. It'll mean saying no to some people, even if it means conflict or loss for you. Could mean conflict. It will mean pushing through our laziness. Sometimes it'll mean doing things that are uncomfortable. I mean, I felt it last night, didn't you? I had, had my, my brother there and we had uh, a couple of other non-Christians at the table and uh, Kel spoke beautifully and the opportunity was there to talk to them and I just wanted to stay silent. I did not want to get into a spiritual conversation with these people. Fortunately, I had some godly chats with Presbyterian people around me who forced me to do it. <laughs> God demands that he be the priority of our lives and not a pleasant life. Reality is sloth is sinful and a pleasant life put above all else is idolatry. So there's the call. Trust Jesus as your king, follow his example. Do what's right, not what's easy. Follow God's path not the path of least resistance. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that Jesus did not do what was easy or follow the path of least resistance. We thank and praise you that he went, that he became flesh, that he became a man, gave up the ease of heaven for us, that he lived a perfect life, tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin and that he served you all the way to the cross. We thank and praise you that he is the great king, the eternal king. We pray that you will help us to trust him and help us to to follow his example as we're commanded to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.